Today's TribCast is brought to you by the Texas Association of Community Colleges and Texas 2036. Texas Community Colleges are the state's economic engine for recovery. Our colleges provide credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. Visit TACC.org. And Texas 2036, building long-term data-driven strategies to secure Texas prosperity through our bicentennial and beyond. For more information, visit texas2036.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for August 19th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. This week I am joined by our West Texas Panhandle Plains reporter, Jamie Lozano. Hey, Jamie. Hey. And our Washington, D.C. fellow, Eric Nugaborn. Hey, Eric. Hey, Matthew. Thank you to both for joining us. I am recording this and it has stopped raining in Austin, Texas this Friday morning, although I'm still wearing my rain jacket from coming into the office today, um, which makes it really terrible timing to be talking about the drought that has hit Texas across the state, or maybe not such a terrible timing, given that we, you know, people may be falsely um, under the assumption that this might you know, bring it into that drought. Jamie, you have been paying attention to this for a while. You wrote a story for us this morning about this drought. It seems to be, you know, affecting practically the entire state. Can you tell us a little bit about where we stand right now in this in this situation in Texas? Yeah, so really right now, um, what we're seeing from the latest drought map is that about 96% of the state is in drought conditions um, and very, very small parts of the state are actually um, faring pretty well this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of that, you know, we're talking about 62% of the, of the state facing extreme drought, while 27% of the state is facing exceptional drought. Um, those are the two most severe categories of drought that we can face. And so to have that being the situation for Texas right now, I mean, that's that's a pretty pretty big point to try and build back up from. Yeah. What parts of the state are feeling this the most right now? Well, really, right now, um, it's a lot of um, it's a lot of West Texas going up towards north and central Texas. And then um, it kind of rips across central to east Texas as well. So um, that's where at least the exceptional drought is. in terms of the extreme drought and lower categories, uh, that's pretty scattered across the state. Yeah, well, you you had a stat in your story that was pretty striking. Um, more than 400 cities and other public water systems from Aransas Pass to Zapata County have put some sort of water restrictions in place to avoid the shortages. Um, what are you hearing from folks around the state whose job it is to make sure that we have enough water about how dire of a crisis this is right now? I mean, I'm hearing a lot of concerns um, just in terms of, you know, there's planning, there's a lot of the long-term state planning um, that are in place in different counties. Um, The only thing is just 
as far as enacting any of that. That is the problem um, because we can plan for it, but then we also have our reservoirs are 20% um, below what they normally are for this time of year. So regardless, it seems like the planning, it, it's not enough to really bring comfort to the people who are having to directly deal with the drought. Sure, sure. And, and you know, it seems like there's been some some pretty extreme cases. You, of course, um, uh, you know, wrote about the the situation in um, in uh, Odessa earlier this year, which of course was less of a shortage of water and more of an infrastructure problem. But one thing that you have talked about in this story is how maybe sometimes those two things are connected, right? And how you know the drying of the ground could can can then create you know leaks or or in the situation of Odessa major possibly problems that you know can shut off infrastructure or force you know um, uh, cities to have to respond quickly to to kind of shore up those pipes to to keep water from being wasted right right and um, the you know the interesting part of that is that I wrote about the Odessa situation back in June when it occurred. And since then, we've seen more water line breaks uh, because of the heat and because of the drought um, all over North Texas. Um, I know particular uh, the Fort Worth area was having a lot of those reports come out. And then uh, over the past few weeks, it's been hitting San Antonio especially hard. Um, and so it really is just the the combination of both the extreme heat that we're having and the severeness of the drought that is partially responsible for some of these breaks. Um, because, you know, as I mentioned in the article, um, the dry conditions in the ground uh, with the soil specifically, it can cause uh, the soil to expand and contract. And that puts a lot of pressure on any pipes that are underground. Um, and so right now with how our infrastructure um, really is in the state, I don't know if we could really stand that for much longer without some kind of relief, even if it is short term. How do people feel about how prepared Texas is for this? Um, it's no secret that you, you mentioned about how it's, it's not just the drought, it's the heat, right? And I think there are a lot of questions about whether droughts like this are becoming more common uh, due to global warming. Just do people feel good about where we are in terms of water supply and water infrastructure, maybe not just for this year, but but long term as these things might become more common? Well, really long term, um, I think, is the concerning part of that, because, you know, we can see certain reservoirs in the state that are at average levels. And so it doesn't seem like it's a problem. Um, but, you know, you have to take into consideration that for several years now, we've been talking about the Ogallala aquifers water levels depleting um, and how that's been a consistent trend over the years. And um, it's things like the drought and the heat that combine in these these summers that climate change is making worse. We do have the science to show that. Um, but uh, it's a combination of those two factors that can really make a lot of damage for the state whenever you look at how we can even improve and recover from ongoing droughts. Sure. One thing that you I found fascinating about this story is, is we have this drought map. And as you mentioned, we're, we've got you you know, big sections of the state, but not most of the state in exceptional drought. Comparing that to the last big drought in, in, in 2011, where much of the state was in that kind of extreme level drought. But you noted that 
the state's reservoir reservoir levels are similar. Do we know why that might be? Um, the, really, the uh, the meteorologists and the researchers that I spoke with about it, they think that that is just the factor of even though um, the drought may have been worse back then, it is still very widespread and it's been going on for over a year now at this point. And so it really is just the factor of even though we're not as in drastic of shape as we were in 2011, we still aren't getting the relief that helps boost those reservoir levels. Sure. What what impact is this having on the agriculture industry in Texas? It's base. It's made for a really, really hard year for agriculture here in Texas. Um, very early on in planting season, uh, back in June, there was some early rains um, that helped. But then since then, it's really a lot of cotton crops in particular have dried out. Um, if they even got the chance to sprout, that was a big concern um, here in the area with cotton producers. Um, but then on top of that, we have seen an increase in cattle sales as um, cattle ranchers are not able to readily find the, the food that they need for their livestock um, and for them to be grazing. And so it's really just it's it's amplified a lot of the fears on how our yields will look at the end of this year, but also, again, how we recover from this, because um, it's been a bad couple of years for agriculture as it is. And it just seems like there's not really any kind of long-term relief that helps them bounce back from it. So continually, it's it's essentially year after year, it does get worse just as a result of this. What about just the short-term impact on rain? I mean, is there any insight to this? From what I hear, um, the you know, meteorologists, the researchers over at NOAA, they are confident that this rain that's coming in this next two weeks, that it'll at least help improve conditions. Um, but long-term, it's looking like even in um, September and October, we're going to be below average whenever it comes to our rainfall. So it'll at least offer some relief. Um, it's just, we very well could be right back where we are now by the end of September. Well, I will say I was uh, walking my kids to school today and uh, without an umbrella and had a very wet uh, walk back to my house. Um, but I will say that I was happy to see it and, and, and okay with it. It was both an example of how, um, you know, unused to it that it didn't even occur to me that I might need to bring an umbrella, um, <laughs> but also, uh, you know, how happy I was to see it, even though uh, my dog and I were getting drenched. So thank you, Jamie, for talking us through. Let's uh, take a break and hear from our sponsors. The TripCast is brought to you by BNSF Railway is one of the top transporters of the products and materials that help feed, clothe, supply, and power communities throughout America and the world. And Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. Okay, so we are coming up about two months away from the start of early voting in the 2022 elections. And there will be a lot of big names on the ballot. Greg Abbott, Beto O'Rourke, of course, at the top, Ken Paxton, and, and various other you know prominent members of Congress. Um, one name that will not be on the ballot, Louis Gohmert, the kind of firebrand politician out of East Texas, who ran for attorney general challenging Ken Paxton in the Republican primary and came in last 
ending a you know very prominent and controversial career in Congress. Eric, you had a story about this this week. I thought a really smart and interesting story about Gomer and the arc of his career, which um, at least for now appears to be coming to an end. I want to talk about that, but first, tell us a little bit just about the role and the presence that Gomert had in the U.S. House of Representatives. Yeah, like you mentioned, he was uh, a, a firebrand member of Congress. He was really a one of the first members of Congress to just be so drawn to controversy and calling out members of both parties, often infuriating his own Republican leadership, spreading countless falsehoods, and not really playing any major legislative role. And he was more of a bomb thrower than a legislator is something that was kind of a, a sticking point in his career. And we're seeing the Louis Gohmert types of Congress becoming more common in, uh, especially among the, or among the Republican party. Um, we saw him at the beginning of kind of the early 2010s and the late 2000s. He was kind of an outlier in Congress. He had a few allies such as Steve King and Michelle Bachman. Um, but now we're seeing the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Warren Boberts, who are increasingly following Gomert's style of governing, which is controversy, conflict, anger, rage, and no emphasis on policy. Indeed. Let's walk through just some of the Louis Gomert highlights before we get into kind of his impact on, on the House and then the political dynamic. You led your story with the story of Louis Gomert and terrorist babies. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was one of the first big prominent moments of Gomert's career. It came a little over five years into his time in Congress, um, but it essentially revolved around statements he made on the House of Representatives floor about some, some scheme that he heard from a retired FBI agent that terror cells were sending pregnant women to the US to give birth to babies who would emerge decades later as terrorists. And like many things Gomer has said in his career, there was no evidence to back it up. Uh, it was a flat out conspiracy theory. And he later went on Anderson Cooper's show on CNN um, in which Cooper challenged him pretty vigorously about his claim. And he had no evidence to back up his claim. He showed off the rage that has come to define his career. So that was kind of the, the first real national window of insight into who Louis Gohmert is. You know, I, I think it's an interesting kind of story to look back on because I remember this happening. I remember it being kind of a big deal and controversy. I remember it being um, creating kind of a lot of derision and, and mocking. Um, and now it just feels like so such a precursor to the the discourse that's going on in, in our politics right now and and now kind of what stands out about it is the fact that he went on cnn you know and now that <laughs> it seems like less common for you know the the thing that seems so rare is the appearance on cnn and not necessarily the kind of outlandish uh no basis in fact claim that was being made how much do you think this is something that Louis Gohmert helped bring on? And how much of this is more just the discourse moving in his direction? I guess a better, another way to ask that question is how influential has he been in, in, in 
kind of the evolution of our politics over the last decade? I would say he has not been as influential despite kind of the trends moving toward the Louis Gomer type of um, kind of operating. Um, he, I think his, the attorney general rates earlier this year kind of showed just the limits on who he is as a member of Congress. Um, he has very little statewide appeal. Um, even as the kind of rhetoric that he espouses is becoming more prominent nationwide and statewide, he, I would not say he was kind of the, um, the, the most powerful member of Congress who is responsible for so much of the rhetoric that we're seeing today. I think it was more so he was one of the first to show that this was a type of um, operating in Congress that was possible. And it really took off after Trump's um, election in 2016, which saw which prompted the, the arrival of some of these newer names who are similar to Gilbert and how they operate. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that and you mentioned the primary because I think that it raises some really interesting questions about where we are as a state right now politically, because, of course, we are known as a very conservative state. And that is, um, uh, you know, I think a title that is has been rightfully given, you know, look at the way look at the measures that are coming out of our legislature look at, you know, the direction that Governor Greg Abbott has gone. Um, a lot of things that have kind of gained national attention for kind of leading the way in which, you know, the policies that Republicans are pushing. On the other hand, you know, Greg Abbott does not make, does not spread a lot of falsehoods about the 2020 election. He does not kind of seem to go in at the same level as some in the Trump wing or the Gomert wing of the party do in terms of spreading those falsehoods. I think, you know, similar things could be said about Dan Patrick, another prominent, you know, an unquestionably conservative and a firebrand in his own right, but doesn't seem to play that same type of game as Louis Gomert. And, you know, so it's interesting. It was interesting to see him finish fourth in that race, despite his kind of frequent appearances on Fox News and, and kind of the darling status he has taken up in Texas. Yeah, um, I think something kind of that I've looked back to is that you don't and I think in today's Republican Party, you don't have to be like Louis Gohmert to be successful, but you can be like Louis Gohmert and be successful. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, he like he I mean, he maybe you can't on being a, a late addition to a statewide attorney general race, but you can hold office for nearly 18 years and not face any significant electoral challenge. Um, so the the falsehoods are still um, they're becoming more and more common. But I mean, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has not is not like this at all. And he's still one of the most republic, powerful Republicans in the country. Um, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting dy dynamic yeah. that's going on in the GOP. Yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting point that you made right there. What do you, you talked to some of his colleagues in the Texas delegation um, about him for this story? Gomert, of course, um, declined to comment and did not speak to you. I mean, what is what is your sense of the way his colleagues feel about him? Yeah, so these were all conversations on the record. So I think they may not have been as, um, just not sure their entire viewpoints of who their thoughts on him, but the on the record comments were telling in that 
I talked to, I think it was six or seven other members of the delegation. Um, and the, the Republicans were very complimentary of his, his style, his rhetoric, his role as a talker, his role as giving a voice to people's grievances, but they never mentioned any type of policy whatsoever. Um, when I asked them what uh, they would consider his signature policy or what um, he, he's even done po policy-wise, they, they didn't answer the question. So I think that's kind of telling in how he will be remembered among his colleagues and that um, he was much more of the instigator than the policymaker. Well, and as your headline mentions, he only passed one bill at, during his 17 years in Congress. Uh, what was that bill again? Um, yeah, so it was a law um, that was passed. It kind of simplified the process of calling 911 in certain phone operating systems, where sometimes I think if you are in some sort of environment or organization, you have to press another button to get to the main line. So he wanted to simplify it for, to call 911. Not the biggest, most groundbreaking piece of policy, but it was the one bill that became law that he sponsored. So you, you, like we said, you, you attempted to talk to him for this story. He did not speak with you, but I mean, what does he kind of say out there in the world about this? What, how does he view his time in Congress and the role he played? Yeah, well, he, um, his office never responded to our request for, for an interview, but I was able to track him down for about a minute in uh, the halls of Congress. Um, and he, I asked him what he considered his time in Congress being like, and he said he got a lot done. Um, he got a lot done behind the scenes, got a lot of things fixed, changed, amended. And then when I asked him what specifically he got done, he didn't answer the question. Um, so it was an interesting um, kind of idea that he um, is so vehement that he got a lot done, but wasn't able to specifically say what he got done. Yeah, tell us a little bit about you know, one, one interesting thing about this, of course, he has he's in a very conservative district. He has very comfortably held on to his seat in East Texas during the time he's been there. What is your sense? And he did very well in the attorney general's race in East Texas as well, right? I mean, he finished four out of four um, in, in the, the people who are running in that primary. But, um, you know, in those counties around where his district is or nearby, he, he, he performed much better. Is, what is your sense about just the appetite for that kind of politics um, in that district? And I, I'm, I'm kind of leading you into this question, particularly wondering about the, the person who will replace him in Congress, presumably, in that seat. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, so I think one of the things about his appeal is that he you know what you're getting with Louis Gilmert. He's not gonna he's gonna he's gonna say what he thinks. He's not gonna be um like some people in Washington who are a little more cagey about their beliefs and they flip-flop on their beliefs. He's always gonna be true to who he is. And I think that resonates with a lot of people in East Texas. Mm -hmm. And I think another thing is they like familiarity. Um he was their guy for for over 15 years and they kept going with him. And it's interesting in that I think familiarity played a big role in deciding who his successor will, successor will be. Um, by any indication, his successor, his, his successor who is Judge Nathaniel Moran, 
mm-hmm. um, will not be like Gomer. He kind of wants to be a team player. He wants to be a policymaker. Um, but he is a familiar face in the district. He's a longtime fixture in Republican politics um, in East Texas. He's Smith County judge right now. So I think familiarity plays a big role in, in voters' decisions, even if he's not going to adopt the same firebrand conservatism. Uh, he will be a pretty reliable Republican vote. Yeah. Well, I I recommend folks read the story. I think it's a complex story and an interesting story about a complex situation about where we are politically right now, because there's a lot of different, um, you know, you, a lot of different dynamics here about how this element in the Republican Party has gained more prominence, how it has been successful at times and unsuccessful at times. It's, I don't think there's a simple answer. And I don't think we quite know the answer about what, you know, what the future of Louis Gohmert type politics are in this state and in this country. So uh, thank you for writing it, Eric. And that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you to our producer, Todd. And thank you to our sponsors, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, Texas 2036, BNSF Railway, and Educate Texas. We'll talk to you all next week. Do